Butts and Guts, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring your digestive and surgical health from end to end. So hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Butts and Guts. I'm your host, Scott Steele. I'm the chairman of colorectal surgery here at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. Today, we're going to talk about rectal cancer. And I'm very pleased to have Dr. Emre Gorgon here, who is one of our staff colorectal surgeons here. He's the Krauss Lieberman Chair in Minimally Invasive Colorectal Surgery. Emre, welcome to Butts and Guts. Thank you very much, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here, and thanks for having me. So for all the listeners out there, we'd like to start these, but just tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, where you're from, where'd you train, and how did it get to the point where you wound up here in Cleveland? Absolutely. Thank you for asking. Uh, I was born actually in Istanbul, Turkey, uh, overseas, and moved to Cleveland Clinic about 15 years ago now. And I uh, was trained here at the clinic, then did a little bit more training in, back in Cornell and Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York and came back here to the clinic as a full-time faculty since 2011. I've been on the faculty here and really enjoying it. So today we're going to focus on rectal cancer. You've done a lot with rectal cancer patients. You've operated on a lot of rectal cancer patients. But let's start off by saying, how does most rectal cancers present? I think first we need to probably start saying, what is rectum? So it's the very lower portion of our intestinal tract. The cancers of this area, of this anatomical location, is referred as rectal cancer. And how they present is, obviously, you know, if there's a lesion abnormal tissue uh, structure in this area, it can present most of the time with bleeding. So rectal bleeding is one of the main things we need to watch out for. So lots of symptoms happen in there. There's a lot of people. I always try to tell my residents and my trainees, my fellows out there that if you have something wrong with your arm, what do we do? We look at our arm. But as you said, this is the last few inches of our GI tract, and it's very difficult to kind of look and see what's going on. And all of this is originating up inside. So you mentioned bleeding. And I know that some patients may have pain or may, they may have some changes in their stool, but is it to worry if you have, are you saying that if you have pain or bleeding or changes in your stool that you got rectal cancer? Not at all. Not at all. But these are some red flags that we need to be aware of. These are some signs that you need to seek some help or go to see a physician. You certainly need to see a healthcare provider if you are having one of these symptoms. Yeah, and I think that's a crucial aspect that we need to make sure is that we're not saying by any stretch, as a matter of fact, in the majority of cases, it might be hemorrhoids or a fissure or something else. But in this case, you don't want to ignore the symptoms. You want to make sure that you take a look at that. So what causes rectal cancer? There can be many various factors like smoking, obesity. Its main thing is the genetics and, you know, changing in the lining of our intestinal tract, some mutations which leads to abnormal tissues. We refer as polyps or precancerous lesions. They are like a mushroom type of lesions initially, or they can look also flat, but they can turn into some abnormal tissues which can lead later on into the cancer. So you say that there's a genetic component to it, so we need to know what our family has in there, if we have a family history of that. There's some lifestyle things. What comes up oftentimes is, what is the role of red meat? Should I eat red meat? Is that going to cause me to have rectal cancer, or should I eat on the other end of it if I ate all my fruits and vegetables and fiber? What is it about those two different extremes, and how do they relate to rectal cancer, if at all? Sure. There are different studies on those. Certainly what we know is that 
having a healthy diet is very important. What we mean by that is, and we always emphasize when we see patients, I'm sure you do the same thing, is fiber-rich diet, more vegetables, maybe more like what we call a Mediterranean diet. Definitely rich in this type of element in the diet is the best thing. Yes, there are studies showing is red meat can contribute to this, smoking definitely, obesity. These are the things that we should be aware of. That doesn't mean everyone who eats meat gets cancer, but everything needs to be consumed in moderation. So nothing in excessive amount, of course. So I'm a patient and I've experienced some changes in my bowels or I'm having some bleeding or even a little bit of pain. What can you expect from a trip to the doctor, to a colorectal surgeon or even your primary care doctor, and how is this evaluation going to progress? When you present to your doctor, certainly be prepared that you're going to be examined. It's very important to have that type of an examination. Depending on the character or features of your rectal bleeding, you may get an anal area exam or maybe even like a small, what we call as anoscopy or proctoscopy, very quick, pain-free examination in the office setting. So your physician should take a look at inside and make sure that there's no abnormal tissue in the rectal area. I think also one other thing that we need to certainly mention here at this point, since you asked, is also screening colonoscopies, especially for people who are over age of 50. It's very important and we cannot emphasize enough how important uh, a screening colonoscopy is. Anyone who is over 50 should get their colonoscopy done. And this is shown that is a huge factor preventing colorectal cancer. Every year, 140,000 patients are diagnosed with colorectal cancer in the United States, and it's a huge number, and it's a huge disease that we are facing. Colorectal cancer is a curable disease if it's diagnosed on a timely fashion and treated in a correct way. Yeah, absolutely. Every year between the second or third cancer-related death in the United States alone, depending on the year. So let's kind of progress back to the patient who comes in. So I know that I'm going to come in and I'm going to get maybe a digital examination. I may get a small scope that's placed up the rectum to be able to take a look and examine that area. But take me the next few steps. How is rectal cancer diagnosed? And if it is diagnosed as rectal cancer, what are the following tests that I could say that I'm going to have to get in order to completely work that cancer diagnosis up? When you have a rectal bleeding or any changes in your bowel habits, it's very important to come to a doctor. We discussed about that, and that doesn't mean you have it. But let's say you have a suspicious problem or a concerning issue in the rectum, then the thing that you're going to have is be examined, like we discussed earlier. And at that time, an endoscope will be placed. And if the physician is worried about any concerning lesion in the rectum, then certainly you can expect that physician will ask for further studies that may include uh, some imaging, and the most common imaging is the MRI. Of course, full colonoscopy is probably going to be the first thing before even any imaging technology. Let's say you are already diagnosed with a suspicious lesion that is most likely abnormal tissue or cancer. After this area is found, a biopsy will be made also, like that, which means a, a small, almost like a pickup or a forceps is going to be reached into that area, and a small tissue will be sampled and will be sent to pathology un, to be looked under the microscope. And if that finds any abnormal tissues or what we call cancer, invasive cancer, then that would mean that patient might have an invasive cancer diagnosis. Then 
like these imaging modalities that we mentioned are going to follow, which is MRI, pelvic MRI, as well as a CT, a CAT scan of the whole body. That should include what we call staging of the cancer, whether we have other areas involved. Yeah, so what we're talking about here is we're talking about determining the severity or the extent of the disease. And I think what the most important take-home points are is like we want to look at how advanced is the disease locally where it's placed in the rectum, and then has it spread to other areas of the body. So Emery, I want to go back and touch on a couple of things you said. We know that here at the Cleveland Clinic, a lot of patients will get their MRI that's done. Well, let's say I, I grew up in a small town, and uh, you know I don't remember having an MRI around. What about our listeners out there who may not necessarily have access to an MRI? Are there other modalities or tests that they can get to look at the local staging in the rectum itself to see how advanced it is into the wall? Absolutely. We used to use even more often another modality that I believe that's what you are referring to is endorectal ultrasound. And that actually was the gold standard, most likely, before MRI became more popular. Alternatively, pelvic ultrasound or rectal ultrasound can be used. It's good in determining how deep the lesion is penetrating in, through the wall in the rectum, as well as sometimes even to see if there are any lymph nodes or any tumor spread in the deep tissues. So these are two areas that ultrasound can be used if the MRI is not available. You know, another thing that oftentimes comes up that you might read about in a newspaper or in a book is this concept of a PET scan. Does everybody need a PET scan to look at their rectal cancer? That's a very good question. A PET scan, unfortunately, I believe is overly utilized and used, and it's an expensive test and not really necessary most of the time. PET scan is not part of standard staging radiological imaging in this era. Yes, PET scan has a role, but these are really selected cases and it should be used when needed. I'm that patient that comes in and I get my full staging workup. What are the most common places that if rectal cancer were to spread elsewhere in the body, where would they go to? Rectal cancer would go first, the lymph nodes, which are the small lymphatics or areas where the cancer cells are trapped. And these are what we refer as local areas. So it's right behind the rectal organ in the blood supply area, deep in the pelvis still. So this would be the first station, if you will. Then after cancer cells can travel along the vessels all the way up to the liver, Less common areas of spread could be chest, in the lungs, or even in the bony areas and so forth. So Emery, you and I are surgeons, and I know that a lot of patients will come in and they will say that I, I was diagnosed with a cancer and I just want it out, just get it out of my body. And I can understand that sentiment, but let's talk a little bit about treatment now for rectal cancer. Obviously, there's multiple different ways to treat cancers, and we talk about chemotherapy, we talk about radiation therapy, we talk about surgery. Talk a little bit about rectal cancer treatment and how do those three modalities or those three different service lines fit into the treatment for rectal cancer? It's a very combined approach now. These treatment modalities cannot be discussed separately. So basically, depending on the stage of the tumor or how extensive it is locally, the best treatment option is now giving the chemotherapy and radiation just before we operate. And that's five and a half weeks of treatment modality. Again, the radiation is given into the pelvis very locally to affect the rectum and with combination of a little bit chemotherapy. And the role of the chemotherapy in these circumstances is to make the body more sensitive, more acceptable 
receptive to radiation and make the radiation do its job in a better fashion. And really it does. It works very effectively. And sometimes when we go in, tumor is very small or in some circumstances even completely gone. But still as a part of standard treatment of care, we wait after the treatment is completed about eight weeks, in some circumstances, 10 weeks, and then do our operation, which is removing that organ and most of the time putting things back together. So you brought up a couple of interesting things there. And and again, I think it's worth pointing out that this stage is that here at the Cleveland Clinic, we have a multidisciplinary tumor board where all of our colon and our rectal cancers and all of our cancers actually meet and discuss and talk about what we're talking about today in terms of some of these treatments are a generalized patient. And so I think it's important to understand that uh, for anyone out there that's listening that may be going through this or may have gone through this and know family members that are going through it, that there is obviously some individual variations on the form of treatment. But you brought up a couple of things, is that in general, if you have somebody that's maybe a little bit larger tumor, a little bit more locally advanced, they are going to get their chemo or their chemo radiation therapy up front. And then there's that break. What is the reason for that break? And as you said, sometimes that's two, two and a half months. That's a long time. And, you know, if you're going around, patients oftentimes get a little bit of concern about that break. But what's the rationale for that? We know that waiting adds time that what we call as cumulative or added value of the radiation. So the longer you wait, the radiation can have more time to get the cancer smaller. So it does its job. We did do studies which showed us that the optimal time, to the best of our knowledge, at least at this time, is that about 8 to 10 weeks. Yeah, I'm the king of bad analogies, and I like to tell my patients that just like if you go out in the sun, I'm a fair-skinned person. If I go out in the sun, and just because I leave the sun, I could still have effects of that sun afterwards, and radiation therapy continues to have those effects even though after you've done completed that, just like that sunburn that comes in after you're out of the sun. Now we're up to the time of surgery. So can you do this operation through a minimally invasive approach? And also, I know there's some very select patients that might not need to have the whole rectum removed and may be able to go through the rectum and just have that portion of it. Can you talk about those two things? I'm glad you asked me this question. We are a very specialized center and we are gladly helping our patients in these circumstances. Minimally invasive area is a passion of mine and we do perform more than 250 cases a year of these in a minimally invasive fashion. For very early rectal cancer, certainly we don't even have to remove the rectum. In these circumstances, early rectal cancers, we can just go almost like a keyhole surgery from the anus approach and put special devices in, put a camera going through the anus into the rectum and find that spot and make a cut around it and remove it with clear margins. But when we need to remove the entire rectum, even in those circumstances, there are options. We can do these laparoscopically, minimally invasively, but laparoscopically, which means putting little cameras around the belly button, other other puncture holes, and get in and remove the rectum and put things back together, making a reconnection again and another permanent bag so we can reconstruct the intestinal tract and patients can have bowel movements through the normal route again. Another option is what we very widely use is robotic surgery. We can do minimally invasive surgery and use the Da Vinci robot or any newer robots and get into the abdomen, get into the stomach again using these small cameras 
and use a robotic tool and really with a three-dimensional view, enhanced visualization, we can get to the abdomen and remove the rectum again very effectively. And again, put things back together, meaning reestablish the anatomy so patients can use their intestinal tract again. In this case, I think I need to mention it is sphincter preserving. For tumors that are very low, rectal tumors, it is very important. If your doctor tells you that you need to have a permanent back, it's good to maybe seek for a second opinion because there are many specialized centers where preserving the control muscles or sphincter muscles is an option. Using these minimally invasive techniques potentially can allow us to be more precise down in the lower areas and preserve these control muscles. Yeah, I think that's one of the common questions that I get is, does rectal cancer mean that I have to wear a permanent bag, which we would also call a stoma or an ostomy, a colostomy? And I think that it's important for all the listeners out there to understand that in certain cases, that's the right thing to do, is to remove all those tissue that may include essentially that permanent bag that you may have to wear. But there's other instances where, you know, we may be able to re-hook up the bowels so the bowels could be normally in the future, but that may even involve having a temporary bag while after the surgery, you get the completion chemotherapy and subsequently get the bag removed. Okay. So that is a quick walk through rectal cancer. I do want to, what is the typical follow-up after rectal cancer for the first few years that patients can, in general, understand that they're going to be able to go through? After their chemo finished and their, like you mentioned, the temporary ostomy is closed, then they go back to their normal routine without any back. Some may have to have permanent back, but regardless which operation they get, certainly they need to be monitored closely. Typically, we do office visit initially every three months to six months with imagings, with CAT scan, CT abdomen, pelvis. It's important to monitor the rest of the colon and rectum, what's left behind with colonoscopy. So the standard screening for that is one year. And then after, if that's normal, next one would be three years after the last colonoscopy. Yeah, we like to see our patients at regular intervals so we can just make sure that we're undergoing proper surveillance. So, Henry, I'd like to end up all of my interviews with my guests with a couple of quick hitters. And so very quickly, what's your favorite sport or activity? Sailing. And what's your favorite meal? Gyro. And the last book that you read? Emotional Intelligence. I like it. And what is the best thing that you like about Cleveland or one of the best things you like about living in Cleveland? Lake Erie. I like it. And then if you can sum up rectal cancer very quickly, 10 words or less, sum up rectal cancer. Nothing to fear. If you have a problem, come to us. Thanks so much for joining us here on Butts and Guts. Uh, So to sum this up, rectal cancer, second or third leading cause of cancer-related death in the United States. And so to learn more, please download Colorectal Cancer Treatment Guide at clevelandclinic.org forward slash colorectal cancer. That's clevelandclinic.org forward slash colorectal cancer. And to make an appointment with a colorectal cancer specialist here at the Cleveland Clinic, please call 216-444-4673. That's 216-444-4673. That wraps things up here at Cleveland Clinic. Until next time, thanks for listening to Butts and Guts. 